For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. In the wake of this week's vote, take a closer look at the Arizona Electoral College. Tucsonans say goodbye to 2016 and share their personal highs and lows from the last 12 months. And hear the first in a new series of folktales with a story from Zimbabwe that explains why the owl flies at night. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. It may be one of the least discussed parts of the ballot, but each political party nominates 11 voters to the Arizona Electoral College every four years. The number of electors is determined by the size of the state's congressional delegation, plus two senators. By law, Arizona electors are not required to follow the state's voting results, but they generally do. This week, Electoral College voters were under tight scrutiny. Some Americans saw this process as a chance to align the election's outcome with the result of the popular vote. Christopher Conover visited the state capitol for a first-hand report. The protesters walked silently in a circle in front of the historic capitol in Phoenix, but eventually their voices were heard. Protester Lisa Fishman was kneeling on the ground making a sign. She said she was hopeful the electors inside would listen. I have enough hope that I schlepped out from Los Angeles last night to be here. Um, do I think it's going to happen? I know it's slim. I know it's a long shot, but I'm really happy that so many people are out here sharing, you know, making their voice heard. An all-night bus ride from California to Phoenix may seem like an awful lot of trouble, but California went for Hillary Clinton. So Arizona was the closest place that went for Trump. Lisa said she didn't feel like she had any choice but to make the trip. You know what? I've been preaching for the last month on Facebook, and if I thought, if you don't go now and walk the walk, you are the biggest hypocrite ever. Trust me, I was going to bail at the last minute, and I was like, you can't do this, Lisa. You got to go. You got to go the, the, do it, you know. Inside the Capitol, the 11 members of the Electoral College were getting ready to vote. Protests were nothing new to them. They each received thousands of emails and letters asking them not to vote for Donald Trump. Elector Bruce Ash of Tucson said the protest is part of the system. Protest is uh, free uh, in this country. It's a free country. Uh, and I'm sure they'll be respectful to the electors that are here. The outcome of the Electoral College vote in Arizona was no surprise. 11 votes for President-elect Donald Trump and 11 votes for Vice President-elect Mike Pence. Walter Begay Jr. was the only Native American Republican elector in Arizona. He said it was a privilege. As Native American, I think the, having been elected to be out to serve as electoral college, you know, it gives me a chance to uh, represent all of my Native brothers and sisters across the state. And I... I have that honor, and I think that as a country, you know, we've always been neglected, and, and, uh, and they 
by doing this, you know, hopefully a lot of them become aware of that we have a role to play and uh, be a part of the process. Begay said the protest letters and the people outside only serve to strengthen his resolve a feeling shared by fellow elector Sharon Geis. I think it enforced my vote for Trump um, because some of the some of the things were so ridiculous and the misspellings and you know it was just and I figured a lot of kids had done it you know that uh, just from the few that I would read every now and then that uh, but it was inundated and I think it was probably a company because a form letter and I got the form letter to send out which I thought was really bizarre. Back outside, protesters like Heather knew their message fell on deaf ears, but that was okay, even though they weren't happy with the final results. This is good because I had lost a lot of faith in our country. So I needed to see I needed to see this for my own peace of mind. Donald Trump will be sworn in as the 45th president of the United States on January 20th. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. Whether you had a good year or not, it seems most people have strong opinions on the year 2016. In this edition of Under the Sun, Andrew Brown visits the 4th Avenue Winter Street Fair to talk about this year's ups and downs according to the people he met. I'm Ruth and I'm the tarot reader here on the street. Did you see 2016 coming? No. I had some ideas about what was really going on in the world and I just got surprised. I feel like my life's really good and then this year has just been really the hardest one yet. The universe decided that 2016 was the year to make everything go wrong. I voted for the other guy and uh, I've lost some friends to cancer and it's been rough all around. Uh, 16 wasn't too good. Started in February, lost uh, one of my favorite dogs. September, I lost one of our cats. Didn't really pick up till, uh, till just about now. I was a Trump supporter. I'm glad he's in. My first child was born, so that's very exciting. Um, and it's been exhausting and wonderful and amazing and all of those things. Um, and my mother also has knock on wood, beaten cancer, so that's really great news. So it's a good good year all around. I did my first triathlon and I changed jobs and I'm in a happy relationship, so that's cool. Personally, it's been pretty wonderful. I started fostering dogs that were gonna be killed. You get to save them first. But they're very responsive, very loving. They bond with you quickly. My name is Officer Chris Hawkins with Tucson Police Department. This year was, um, you know, there were there were some major incidents involving police, some officers that were that were killed. But we've had a lot of positive things. I think the support for law enforcement here in Tucson it's always been great, but uh, nationwide too, uh, it's gotten you know even stronger. But we have people come up and talk to us all the time and and say, you know, that they appreciate what we're doing. Um, 2016 has been awesome. I'm from Georgia. I've been here in Tucson for about uh, a year. I wanted a change, a peace of mind, and I fell in love with the mountains. So, yeah, I'm writing a book, too. I'm a photographer. I've been to Iceland four times this year, chasing the aurora, and 
leading workshops around the world. Oh yeah, I also hit a half a million on a half a million likes on Facebook, so that's pretty cool. You know, 2016 wasn't that bad until like everybody started dying. Recently, lost my mother, who was one of my biggest inspirations for my creativity and my uh, yeah, just my drive with with photography. And um, I lost her this week, and it's been hard, but I know that she's watching over me and guiding me through life through the rest of it so 2016 actually flew by me one of the things that recently I realized how much I it upset me how many of uh, great uh, rock stars have perished this year how many people that I used to look up to as a, as, as a child like recently Greg Lake from Emerson Lake and Palmer died and his colleague Keith Emerson also died this year I've been listening to Emerson Lake and Palmer all day. For me, I've you know Prince has been throughout you know my entire life someone that I've listened to and loved and admired, and um, so that one was the one for me that was like, really, this is happening. Love this, love this person. When an artist passes away, especially a popular one who's touched so many people, you know, I think people feel like part of them passed away. I wanted to petition David Bowie to go to Mars. What a way to end a perfect career. Unfortunately, uh, Cancer Godman made him a real person. And we all are just real people in the big scope of things. You know, we're all, we're all bleeding on the inside. We all got blood pumping on the inside. Look up here, I'm in heaven. David Bowie gutted me, but Prince really broke my heart, and actually Alan Rickman's death really, really bummed me out too. He was Snape in Harry Potter, just like the best character. Leonard Cohen, it just broke my heart. I loved him. I still love him. I don't know, it was just really sad to hear that he had died. There's a lover in the story, but the story's still the same. There's a lullaby for suffering and a paradox to blame. But it's written in the scriptures and it's not some idle claim. You want it darker. We kill the flame. The events that will be set in motion uh, due to the election of 2016, I believe, will forever alter the planet that we live on. That's the greatest city in the world, Donald Trump. Couldn't get any better than that. That is the way to go. I think he's going to shake things up to where everybody that's used to staying in Washington, D.C. for the rest of their life, I think he's going to teach them a little bit of a lesson. I'm afraid of Trump. I can't believe the candidates that, you know, the, the choices that we had, the lies and deceit and, and all, just, it was just like a very big mudslinging fest all year long. We are going to de-evolve as a society, get dumber, really bad stuff could happen. I always try to just focus on my work and you know serving my community and not you know too much on what the news tells me to be afraid of
Here I am talking to the news, <laughs> telling them to be afraid. <laughs> uh, I'm glad Pokemon Go is no longer a thing. <laughs> that was a stupid trend. <laughs> 2017 should be better, but you know it's we got a big wall to climb. So <laughs> we should no pun intended. <laughs> so. I could not forecast what's going to happen next year. I hope that all my gay friends are okay. I'm worried about the future. That's always been there. I was born in 1962, dating myself right now, but that was probably the closest the world's ever come to ending with uh, the missile crisis and all the things that have happened and. I think at all that time now, finally Fidel Castro has died. Different things have gone on and times change. They get better, they get worse. Um, you have to be the one to try to make your life better. That story was produced by Andrew Brown and featured the voices of visitors to the 2016 Fourth Avenue Winter Street Fair. Their names and more opinions are on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Next week, AZPM News will present a five-part series recapping the biggest state and national news stories of 2016. To a generation who might now be in their 40s or 50s, video games and the holiday season will always have a nostalgic connection. The golden age of arcades and home consoles started around 1977 and continued until the great video game crash of 1983. Two guys who remember that era well are Ken McAllister and Judd Regill. They're co-directors of the University of Arizona's Learning Games Initiative Archive, a place that preserves and celebrates the history of video games. I asked them to share a couple of their fondest holiday-related memories, and Ken became player one. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, and it was, uh, I'll say, a, a modest upbringing. And my family didn't have a, a lot of money for big presents, um, but they did know that I was really into the arcade, into arcade machines and so on. And without doubt, the, the very best present that I got was a curious little um, uh, tube uh, wrapped up under the tree, a really innocuous little uh, thing, but it was heavy, and I couldn't quite figure out what it was. Um, the ends were twisted with bows on it, and uh, I opened it up and discovered that it was a, a roll of tokens, arcade tokens. <laughs> and um, I, I knew, I kind of knew in my heart that actually my family probably couldn't afford that, um, that roll of tokens, but uh, it was one of my best uh, Christmases as a, as a kid. And um, <laughs> the arcade, unfortunately, was closed on Christmas Day, but the very next day I was there when it opened. And uh, I was able to make those tokens last almost the entire day. So that was a great one for me. They had a lot of potential there in your hand when oh, you were yeah. holding that roll. Absolutely. Now, Jed, I'd like to hear a memory that you have. We didn't uh, celebrate Christmas growing up. Of course, Hanukkah is around that time. And um, we didn't have a lot of disposable income either. Um, but one thing I remember is getting a Mattel football, a little handheld device, and um, just the sounds and the, the kind of experience of it was, it, and the fact that it was mine was, was pretty special. And the amazing graphics, the tiny red little dots. Yes. They were, boy, that a was something. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I, I enjoyed playing games at friends' houses. They, um, they all had Ataris and um, ColecoVisions and Intellivisions and things like that. Um, but this was something that I had that I could 
I could take around with me and put in my backpack and things like that. So people ask us uh, pretty often, how much do we think games are better now that the technology has become so sophisticated? Um, and it's for us as archivists uh, and historians of games, it's really fun to see exactly that phenomenon. We did an exhibition at Special Collections here at the university probably five or six years ago now. And uh, one of the fun things that we worked out was a um, very large screen TV uh, in the main lobby of the of Special Collections with Pong loaded up. And uh, we just kind of wanted the chance to immerse ourselves in Pong and visitors be able to see the aesthetics of it. And what was funny was it ended up uh, being a wait-in-line situation. Everyone would take their turn at the free Pong uh, machine. Today, though, there's, a, there's been a lot of changes in the video game industry, um, and it, the experience maybe isn't quite the same. So what kind of thoughts do you have about how the situation has changed for the generation that is playing video games this Christmas season? I think for one thing, games are so ubiquitous uh, now that the magic that probably all of us sitting around this table uh, experienced when we were young, it's really not there. It's not that video games aren't great gifts uh, and that uh, people who are playing them in this generation aren't having a blast uh, playing them and meeting new people and building friendships and so on. But just the, the magic of turning your television into a game system, we just don't have that uh, anymore. It's, it's been around for half a century now. Or the excitement of um, the fact that one person on the block had a game system. And so all the kids would run over there on Christmas morning to see the game that that person got. And everyone would, would take turns uh, to take turns playing Space Invaders or take turns playing Pac-Man and just the, the kind of mob excitement in a room. Um, today, it would be not particularly common to, to gather around the TV and take turns playing a game. And Eric Hart, if you're listening, I still remember how you hogged Space Dungeon and wouldn't let anybody else play it. And I'm still angry about it. Merry Christmas. <laughs> My guests were Ken McAllister and Judd Regill from the University of Arizona's Learning Games Initiative Archive. You can find out how to visit their collection on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Since ancient times, among the first things that people shared were the drum and the story. Today, our storyteller is Prey Zananga. A long time ago, a very, very long time ago, when birds had their king. This is a story from Southern Africa, particularly from Zimbabwe, and it's a story that comes from a different type of desert, which is known as the Kalahari Desert. And owl was the king of the birds. The great horned owl is a big, big bird with big, round, yellow eyes that could see through the dark. And he also has very, very sharp claws. Most importantly, he has horns. And all birds lived in fear of their king. The king also had bodyguards and tight, tight security in the form of birds like hawks and eagles, other scary birds like vultures, those were the security. Nobody was allowed closer to the king. So one day the king sounded a drum to announce that he wanted to get a big meeting with everybody, and the drum rolled.
when the birds heard this call, they all rushed to the meeting because they were afraid of their king. And when they got there, the king made his announcement. Oh, my people, I called you here to remind you that I am your ruler. I am your king. I am special. I have eyes that see through the dark, that see in your mind, that see through your heart. I know what each one of you is thinking, so do not mess around with me. I am also superior because I have horns and all of you do not. I can strike and kill anyone who doesn't obey my orders with these horns. Oh my gosh, all the birds trembled and shook in fear. Now, as your king, I want all of you to bring me food three times a day. I want you to bring me breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The small birds were ordered to bring two worms for breakfast, two worms for lunch, two worms for dinner. These were the little birds like the sparrows and the cardinals, and the medium birds like roadrunners and flycatchers, and blackbirds and blue jays were asked to bring two grasshoppers each, two for breakfast, two for lunch, and two for dinner. And all the big birds that included ravens, eagles, and hawks were asked to bring two mice or two rats each. So owls scattered all of them and they ran into the desert to look for whatever they could get to bring to their king. So within a short while, the little ones brought worms, the medium ones brought grasshoppers, and the big, big birds brought some mice and some rats, and the king was so happy. So he lived like this for days, for months, for years, and all the birds were shaking and trembling every day. They were also getting thinner because they did not have enough time to look for their own food. Most of the time, they were hunting for food for the king, and every day in his big, big palace, under the big rocks, the owl would gather different types of little owls that were his relatives. The barn owls, the burrowing owls, the ground owls, and all of them big horned owls. They ate and they were getting bigger and fatter and healthier, while all the birds were getting skinnier and skinnier. The owl sounded the drum again and called everybody to show them how big and how affluent he was getting and how rich he had become with all his relatives. And when the birds gathered and the king owl was about to address them, the blue jay raised his hand and the king said, Hey, how can I help you, little chap? And the blue jay said, Oh, my royal king, I have hearing problems. I can't hear you very well. Is it possible for me to come closer? Yeah, I like people like you, those that listen to their king. Move closer. I want you to hear what I'm saying so you can obey me. So the blue jay moved closer and perched on a little branch closer to the king right on top of his head. And also the red-winged blackbird said, Your honor, can I come closer too? I have hearing issues. 
Yes, I said I like people who listen to their king. Please move forward. So the black bird also perched on the other side of the owl's head. And as they were sitting there, they looked closely at the horns of the owl. And they were like, oh my gosh, this guy does not have horns. So they looked and looked and figured out that they were lied to. He had a tuft of feathers that looked like horns. And they knew all along they've been cheated. And when it came time to bring breakfast, the blue jay and the red-winged blackbird did not bring any food. Hey, where is my food, you two little chaps? And the two birds said, ha, 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 you are kidding us. You have been lying to us all along. We ain't going to bring any food for you. You got to look for your own food, dude. Oh, my people. This is the time that I want to show all of you what I do to people who do not obey me. He wanted to strike them with his horns and tear them into shreds with his big long clothes. So all the other birds were shaking, but all these two little birds were laughing and saying, you ain't gonna do nothing to us. Come on, bring on your game. We will show you who we are. The blue jay and the red-winged black bird started chanting, You don't have horns. You have feathers. You don't have horns. You have feathers. And as they chanted and chanted, all the other birds came closer and closer, and the owls started trembling. They kept chanting and chanting and chanting until all the birds were getting closer and scrutinizing, and the blue jay plucked off some tufts of feathers from the owl's head and lo all the birds figured out the owl had no horns and was lying so the owl took on to his wing and took off and all the birds were chasing him and his little friends and all the birds were in full pursuit the blue jays the king birds the ravens the hawks the fork-tailed road runners Everybody was in pursuit, and from that day onwards, you will never see the owl moving during the day. And whenever you see an owl flying during the day, the blue jays and the red-winged blackbirds and the ravens, they are always after the owl. They will mob the owl and chase the owl out of their territories. This is the end of the story. Ray Zenanga is Director of Africana Studies in the University of Arizona's College of Humanities. Next month on The Drum and the Story, we'll hear a traditional tale from China about how you the Great once subdued the Great Flood. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.